works with us very closely on foreign policy, national security, and on, the, on climate change issues, uh, will be here to, to take notes, but I'll have to get, get caught up. Because this is um, an issue which Kimberly outlined just a couple of minutes ago that has captured the attention of the American people uh, in a way that even as she said a few years ago, we probably did not think were, was possible. So I'm grateful to set the stage, and I know some of what I, I'll say a lot of people in the room already know. The experts here will, will validate and expand, but I'm just here to set the stage. But it is that kind of an issue. This is uh, the issue of climate change is the most grave challenge that our world faces. Simple as that. It transcends borders and affects every aspect of our lives. It is not too dramatic, nor in any way an exaggeration, that unchecked, uh, climate change leads to famine and darkness and death. The Act, which is now empowering USAID to develop a more integrated interagency approach to food security across agricultural value chains and expanding farmers' access to local and international markets through the Feed the Future program. As we look to the hard work of congressional oversight over Feed the Future, I'm pleased that USAID has already begun to bridge the emergency humanitarian programming with its longer-term development efforts to build resilience for communities affected by conflict and climate change. But the United States cannot do this alone. We need to work together on a global scale to not only reduce greenhouse gas emissions and mitigate economic risk, we also must ensure agricultural and food supply chains can withstand climate events. This administration's decision, the Trump administration's decision, to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement was a huge blow to U.S. leadership in climate policy. That's what's known as an understatement. I, along with several of my colleagues in the Congress and throughout the United States government, will continue to fight for policies that bring the United States in line with, this, with its Paris goals. We're doing our part uh, to address this global threat, but we've got to do uh, a lot more. Many, many of you know that one of the domestic efforts that has been undertaken over the last number of years was the Clean Power Plan. The EPA's Clean Power Plan uh, that was, of course, announced and developed in the last administration uh, has been uh, almost utterly destroyed. Uh, we have to make sure that we're doing our part uh, at, a, um, at a, a national level as well as an interna international level. I was recalling, as I was preparing uh, my remarks for this morning, a letter I wrote to the EPA back in November of 2014, seems like a long time ago. And in that report, or in that letter, I should say, I was quoting uh, a report from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and Climate Analytics. And the reason I quoted that, that or quoted a portion of that report was to uh, make it very clear not only to um, Administrator McCarthy, but she probably already knew this, but to a wider audience of the people that I represent, what is the underpinning of our efforts on climate change in a domestic context? And here's what I said, here, here's what the report said that I quoted. 
quote, the effects of climate change on agricultural production may exacerbate undernutrition and malnutrition in many regions, already major contributors to child mortality in developing countries. While economic growth is projected to significantly reduce childhood stunting, climate change is, pro is projected to reverse those gains in a number of regions. Substantial increases due to malnutrition are projected to occur with warming of 2 degrees Celsius to 2.5 degrees, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. So I go on from there. That was 2014, quoting a, a report from several years earlier. We are still not taking action that is commensurate with or in alignment with that urgent um, reality. So if anything, that was five years ago, if anything, we're, uh, we're behind. And that leads me to a discussion about agriculture and uh, agriculture itself in Sub-Saharan Africa. I'm a member of the Senate uh, Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry. And all three of those words are important. The second word doesn't get a lot of attention, the Committee on Agriculture and Nutrition. I'm increasingly concerned about our ability to keep pace with agricultural production as global population grows. The global population is expected to grow by, grow to 10 billion by 2050. And with that demand uh, for both meat and dairy coming with it. The impacts of climate change on food systems across the globe will be substantial, but perhaps nowhere larger than in Sub-Saharan Africa. We know from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that 90% of the region's cropland is expected to see yields of less, or uh, to see yield losses, I should say, of up to 40%. Let me say that again. 90% of the region's cropland is expected to see yield losses of up to 40%. We face some of the same challenges here at home. We're working to help farmers adapt to these pressures while also being part of the solution through climate-friendly agricultural practices. For millions of people across Africa, Asia, Thanks again to Senator Casey and to my colleague Kimberly for a great uh, opening uh, to this important panel. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program here at the Center for Strategic International Studies. Um, and in a previous life, I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa, so no surprise here, uh, this is right in my wheelhouse. Uh, it was a, a topic of conversation. Many a times, the Senator referenced a number of unclassified intelligence assessments around this issue. Uh, but I'm going to be honest that I have a, perhaps the unintended consequences of the well-meaning response. And I know today in the panel we'll try to, try to tease that a little bit. Um, I feel really great about this panel because these are really sharp analysts here today. We're not going to get any bumper sticker analysis. I don't think you're going to get oversimplification. Um, 
The four uh, people to my left have been working on this issue from a policy standpoint, a analysis standpoint, an academic standpoint. Um, and I think they're going to be able to leverage today some of the, the, the best in the academic and analytic frameworks to think about this problem set. So I know you have their bios in front of you, but let me just quickly uh, introduce them. Uh, immediately to my left is Colin Hendricks. He is the director of the Xi Chang Kang, uh, Kang Center for International Security and Development and a professor of the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and senior research advisor at the center. Oh, did I say that right? In Africa, and specifically in Sub-Saharan Africa, has increased significantly over the last couple of decades. Now, that's the result of a relatively good story about rapid economic growth and prosperity uh, in, in mostly in East Asia and South Asia. But it does mean that increasingly, and if we look at population projections, it's likely to be the case of moving forward that the locus of undernourishment is going to be moving increasingly towards the African continent. Um, another issue is just that we have a better uh, both physical understanding of the impacts of climate change so that we are able to better project the impacts that's going to have for future droughts, uh, future heat waves, uh, more episodic and unpredictable uh, rainfall and weather patterns that are likely to have very significant impacts in sub-Saharan Africa in large part because of continued reliance on uh, traditional rain-fed subsistence agricultural practices uh, for a large share of the population there. Uh, two things though that I wanted to mention that I don't think that the senator touched on are kind of important. Um, one of the things is that we now have a better understanding, I think, in the academic side and also on the practitioner side, of what really some of the security challenges associated with climate change look like. That discourse got started in the early 2000s, but that discourse was largely, I would say, work of, of science fiction rather than social science or, or scientific exploration. And we now have much better scientific consensus about both the physical impacts, but then also some statements that indicate that climate change is a very significant risk factor for armed conflict um, and is likely to increase in, in its significance uh, moving forward. Um, I will also say that this is occurring, that we are learning these things at the same time that the uh, intelligence communities and also the academic communities are seeing a decline in, our, in the power of our traditional models to try and anticipate conflict. Um, and so one of the real markers for the decline in the predictability of conflict patterns uh, were the events associated with the Arab Spring, which, which took analysts very much by surprise, and at least on the surface were related to an issue that's intimately related to food insecurity, which is food prices and rapid rates of urbanization, and the increasing tension between a lot of our programming, which is designed to address agricultural livelihoods in rural areas, with a future globally, but, but especially rapidly increasing in Africa, that is going to be urban and therefore interconnected into uh, international and global food systems in much more significant ways. And the last piece I'll say, which has become increasingly salient in the last couple of years, is simply that as we are recognizing the growing importance of international markets and global uh, trade in addressing these kind of food security challenges moving forward, we're seeing a, a retrenchment and a move away from the institutions and the trade practices that are going to be crucial to meeting the food needs uh, of the future. So I think it's the confluence of those various factors that are making these that what is unfortunately seemingly an evergreen uh, issue that comes up maybe every 30 to 40 years really back on the agenda. Yeah, thank you, Colin. Uh, 
I think the connection between some of the, uh, the food riots in the Arab Spring is really helpful. We could also point to uh, Sudan, some other places. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that doesn't get a lot of attention is Senator, already, uh, when we look at climate change on the National Intelligence Council as a security issue, we're often looking at how it's exacerbating uh, other problems that already exist and how it interacts with other trends. And I think it's where that interaction where you get some uh, more specificity. Um, Colin talked a little bit already about demographics, urbanization, how climate change is interacting with that. Um, a couple things I wanted to highlight, going back to your question, Judd, about um, what's changed. I think there are a couple of trends we're looking at and you see climate change interacting and you understand why it's becoming more of a security problem both for the United States and, and the continent. And one, one trend is the trend of governing just getting harder, right? For states, uh, there's an increase in the number, complexity, and speed of issues that governments have to deal with. There's also an increase in the number of individuals and groups that can put pressure on governments, both in authoritarian regimes, but also in democratic regimes. And so states are having uh, to deal with these interest groups in a way they haven't before. And these groups are expressing dissatisfaction in uh, a lot of these states. You see an increase in internal violent conflict around the world to there are more states experiencing this kind of conflict now than any time since the end of the Cold War. And so you add to this volatile mix, this political volatile mix, the issue of climate. And as Judd mentioned, the unpredictability of a lot of the climate issues just exacerbates all of this churn within states and makes it harder for governments, even when they care about it in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, to manage it successfully. Uh, and then to your point that these countries care more about it, I think the other trend I would highlight is the rise in geopolitical competition making cooperation uh, on these issues harder. Because though the impacts are being felt most in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places of climate change, they're not the ones emitting the CO2, right? <laughs> they're not the ones that have the power to change that, that side of the equation. So at a time when you actually need cooperation among states to deal with these issues, that's much harder to do because, I mean, this is a story we all know by now, right? The, the post-World War II international order is fraying, multilateralism is harder, cooperation is harder, there's no leadership. So we can talk a lot about the um, adaptation, the building of resilience within states to deal with these issues, but that's only one half of the puzzle. The other part is, is dealing with the CO2, and that's where you need the, the international cooperation, which is, is just increasingly difficult. Well, let's, thanks, Aaron. Let's get uh, a little more granular on, on the impact, and I'm going to turn to Maka and then Joe. Um, how is it changing political dynamics on the ground, insecurity? How, how are there specific countries that seem more vulnerable to this problem set? What are some of the responses from Africans? And I'll note that uh, the African uh, bloc was supposed to talk yesterday at the climate summit and, and call for a, a climate change emergency. So uh, to Aaron's point, uh, I think they're for, we're seeing Africans try to put their, increase their voice on this issue, which I think is a very positive. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Judd, and thank you, uh, everybody, for being here. Uh, so just to, to set the context and really build it off of what Colin and Aaron have already mentioned, um, you know, if you look at climate change pa patterns, mobilized people along ethnic you know, um, lines. So, I mean, it's not, th these are not, not new, but it's, as Aaron and Colin said, exacerbating some of these previously existing conflict patterns. Um, so that's some of what we're seeing yeah. on the and, ground. And I think something that uh, Aaron alluded to and that we haven't brought into fully is just the information, the way in which information flows now on the continent. What, what happens in the middle belt of Nigeria 
can quickly, through WhatsApp and Facebook, get to, to Madugri, can get down to Lagos, and these issues can have a life of their own, and, and that can get into political mobilization around these issues in a way that it wasn't unheard of before, but I yeah. think the, the velocity uh, yeah. of things going from a insecurity around food or triggered by climate change or sort of amplified by climate change can now become a huge political issue that can be mobilized and sort of spread out into ethnic issues or religious issues. Joe, let me see if you have anything to add on, you know, the impact on the ground from where you sit. How is this changing the way? A word cloud for today's panel. The, the biggest word, I think, in the word cloud would be exacerbate. Um, we, we keep talking correctly, and the senator said it as well, that the consequences of climate change exacerbate the conditions for violent conflict. And we think that's exactly right, although we don't think we exactly understand what the dynamics of that exacerbation look like. So what, what I would say about that, um, sort of at the high level first, is that we think that the consequences of climate change play through the patterns of fragility in fragile and conflict-affected states to have their effect on the likelihood of conflict. So to think about what that means, I guess what I would ask you to do is consider a young man in a hypothetical country who um, has just joined a violent extremist group. And this is what his country looks like. His country is affected by severe extreme poverty. They're affecting these kind of rapid price spikes uh, and, and price volatility that can be very difficult uh, for many small-scale producers at the margins of subsistence who are making very consequential decisions about how to invest their, their scarce resources. Uh, what, what we can do to try and tame some of the volatility in those kind of markets, and we can get into a very wonky place kind of talking about that, but that's something you can refer to the G20, spend a lot of time thinking about that in the aftermath of the 2007-2008 food price crisis. Some of our more recent trade agreements, including ones that the United States uh, helped to create but then declined to join, like as in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, had done a very good job, I think, of, of moving in the direction of trying to make sure that there would be advanced notifications to partner countries about, say, export restrictions that might be put in place, which are a significant source of volatility and price spikes in these kind of markets. Um, and so I think that, that, that increasingly, and I can't give you uh, all of the answers right now, I think that's beyond the wisdom of Solomon and certainly beyond the wisdom of me, but I do think that, that I would encourage us to be thinking about solutions that, that are looking at the global food system and not treating these things as sort of discrete, uh, isolated issues of primarily rural agricultural development. Although having said that, as the population becomes increasingly urbanized, because of the high levels of fertility and the absolute rates of growth, many of which are in the three to four, and in some regions, 5% range, mm -hmm. Even if, 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 say, Nigeria becomes 75% urban at some point in the future, there will still be, in an absolute sense, more people living in rural areas and dependent on rural livelihoods in the future than there are currently. And so that challenge will still remain. So moving forward, we'll have to address both sides of that coin. Uh, you've hit, like, all my buttons. Like, <laughs> urbanization, uh, I, you know, I think that it's really important to marry both the way we talk about rural and urban and talk about it with a balance and a dynamic that's sort of back and forth. It's a, it's a, it's a corridor, not a cul-de-sac, and the continent is going to be 
uh, is already 30% urban, will be, will be 50% urban by 2030. Sorry, it's about 40% urban now, it'll be 50% urban by 2030. And then on strategies of rule, I've said a couple of CSI events that I've hosted, but we need to think more about the political economy around these decisions. What are the incentives and disincentives for actors to make uh, smart policy? Uh, and sometimes I think uh, in Washington, we have a more of a technocratic approach to all of this. What are the things that we need to do to deal with resiliency, CBE, fragility, you know, name the, the issue and not think about why actors make decisions that they do and then try to address that. So super happy with that response. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you made me think also about IGAD. Uh, IGAD is the um, East African Regional Economic Body, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, and actually got its start addressing issues of pastoralism uh, and agriculture and the tensions between communities. And I do think you're right that while there are continued problems in Turkana uh, and other places, uh, IGAD has had a really strong record addressing this issue in a way that perhaps ECOWAS hasn't and why we're seeing some problems, although it's not like Nigeria listens to And I'm finding that there's more interest in trying to think about how to factor in climate change in their analysis. Because we do a lot, you know, and, you know, we know, the market knows how to think about elections and the risks around that, and potentially how to punish countries that are not dealing with election risk well, right, in terms of higher yields, right? Um, they don't know, the, 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 the mechanisms and thinking around adaptation, which, is the entire story for Africa, right? Like Africa is more an adaptation story than a mitigation story because it's emitting so little. It's all about who's adapting best and you know, so the, the mechanisms about thinking about how to reward countries that are doing better at adapting and creating more resilient systems is just not there. Um, so, you know, speaking of plugs, we're actually starting a practice um, at Eurasia Group, a climate change practice to do precisely this, to try to help the markets think about, um, you know, because the unit of analysis for or within, you know, regions of sub-Saharan Africa and how do you create programs and build resilience in states that you're not encouraging I don't know, more migration or more movement to the cities or movement to certain areas that puts more pressure on those programs you're trying to create to solve the problems. Uh, the other thing is thinking about the actors you're empowering as well with some of these adaptation programs. Who You're, you're kind of picking winners and losers potentially. And so who are the actors or the, the political parties or the individuals or the leaders and how might they take advantage of some of these programs or the, this effort to further their own uh, political agendas, which may be creating more uh, instability in, in other ways. So just thinking of the interaction of all these, all these different trends. And, and the last thing I'll say, and I don't have a good answer to this, but I, I know why when we're talking about national security and, and security issues, we go to this extremist and terrorist framing of this climate change empowers the terrorists because that's where people end up. But I wonder if that's too simple of a story in some ways, and there are also pressures that climate change and food security issues bring on. Sure. Um, you know, I think, I think one thing I would want to highlight is uh, something that Senator Casey said. Um, he said that the, the governments that are going to do uh, best um, with the challenges of the consequences of climate change are the ones in which people have the most trust. Um, and what that means is that there is a political dimension to this challenge. Um, and so the mis one mistake we could make, Judd, that, um, you know, in terms of our approach to this, is to imagine that all of the policy 
solutions for dealing with this are mostly technical, divorced from politics, and that would be a mistake. Um, a huge part of this is going to involve getting the politics right in a lot of these places that are most vulnerable to climate change. Um, so where there are problems, where you know, huge uh, marginalized groups exist, they aren't included in political processes, where justice systems are broken, all of these are the foundations of trust in government. And where, where those are problems, people opt out of the social compact. So when that happens in the context of serious consequences to climate change, that's where the potential for this exacerbation that we keep talking about to be greatest. So the mistake we, we could make is that we ignore these political dimensions of the problem. Um, we should embrace them and recognize while we do embrace them that it takes a long time to get them right. So uh, the mistake we could make is to ignore the, the politics. Another mistake we could make is to think it's a short-term game. It's a long-term game. Um, and so these commitments to, to buttress these countries to, to prepare them for the challenges of climate change is something that we have to be prepared to commit to for a, a long time. Great, that was an excellent point. So now we're gonna open up to you. You can tell our experts why they're wrong. Uh, you can ask <laughs> questions. Uh, but uh, what we'll do is I'll, we'll do a couple rounds, one question, and then we'll start bundling questions. Please identify yourself, your organization, and please ask a question, which means it ends in a question mark. So uh, why don't we go here first, ma'am. Hi, I'm Emmy Simmons and a CSIS non-resident advisor. Hi. I want to challenge Amaka because she said in Africa the story is all about adaptation. And I'm just not sure that that's true. I think that somehow all of you have mentioned, you know, rapid population growth. Excuse me, that's not sort of an automatic thing. And it's not necessarily true that Nigeria should be the third largest country in the world by 2050. Similarly, people always talk about the Sahel and about Somalia and Sudan, but forget about the sort of contribution to decarbonization that the larger area of Central Africa provides globally. Mm -hmm. And how that, in fact, is a positive, can be a positive mover with regard to climate change. So I'm just challenging you a little bit. I don't think it is all about adaptation. How do you think that Africa's leaders could take on both the political challenge and the scientific challenge and the governance challenge that I think Aaron put out there in a more effective way? Well, should we, should we answer the questions? Yeah, we? Okay. yeah, yeah. So counter. I would, I, I, you know, great points you make, but I would push back, I still think so, Population growth is still, to me, still about adaptation, right? And so is, so is the, the energy, the fact of dependence on energy commodities, right? So, you know, if we, to address the population growth problem, right, there are different ways. Of course, you could try to control population growth. You could, but it, to me, it's still an adaptation problem, trying to control it, adapting to, it's not like you're not necessarily mitigating in terms of emitting less, right? Um, you're trying, you're having to adapt, diversify your sources of revenues, if, if you're places like Nigeria and Angola, so that you depend less on oil. Um, you're having to figure out how, right? And improving so that, so that it will be worth the premium. So, so then you create an incentive. So now you're creating an incentive. You're solving your, your short-term problem. 
because these, they're going to get more money, which will make them happy, right? And they can still vote for you. <laughs> and potentially, and you're potentially, hopefully, stopping the incentive of going to cut down more trees to just grow more cocoa. Um, and of course, more, more cocoa, I, ironically, typically would be lower prices because you're, you know, increasing supply. Anyway, so it's an interesting, they're starting, it's going to go into effect this, this because they sell cocoa in advance. So we'll see how that works. But it's an, an interesting example of trying to solve the long-term, short-term problem. I think we're kind of in an interesting place right now because uh, for some of the reasons that both Kimberly and Aaron said that climate change is in our debate right now. We can see the consequences of it, so maybe it moves it up as, as less long-term than it was maybe just five years. But I mean, if you, if you look at a lot of the downscale climate projections, they're now doing that kind of thing on a very specific disease-by-disease -disease basis. That research obviously, I think, began most critically looking at issues like malaria, um, so looking at, at, at diseases that have large human impacts. and. Um, Parallel to what we have seen in, in sort of the, the long arc of development around research and development around agriculture uh, in the developing world, a lot of that in the past, a lot of the great strides that were made in the past were made because it was in the, uh, I, I guess, the in, enlightened self-interest of many of the countries of the developed world to invest significant sums of money in things like the Consultative Group for International Agricultural Research. Uh, and other vehicles to, to attempt to address these kind of emerging problems, which at the time were obviously associated more with overall production and yield than they were these kind of emerging issues. I think we need to return, I, I think we need to return to that spirit of broader global civic mindedness in thinking about ways of adequately meeting these kinds of uh, challenges. Because I don't think, I, I mean, I think it, it would be great if we could have an interaction between uh, you know, the people who are engaging in animal husbandry on the ground who are experiencing how exactly these diseases are manifesting and they understand what are the, what, you know, what are the transmission vectors very well and they understand the impacts on their animals. Um, but that needs to be fed into, I think, a really tucked up um, globally oriented architecture around research and development. Um, and again, I'm not an expert on that, but that's, that's my abiding belief that we can address those kind of issues the same way we've, ad we've addressed issues like yield uh, and, and crop productivity in the past. Others on the panel? My quick comment to the question of whether the private sector should be leading instead of governments. Um, you know, not to sound skeptical, I'm, I'm skeptical. I think that it sounds good on paper, but I've never known, like the private sector is, is all about profits. And a lot of what we need to do in terms of adaptation. To get around a fundamental deal that private firms always do make, either implicitly or explicitly with government, when they make an investment in a place. And that deal is, you know, we, the private sector firm, are, are going to be as innovative as we can, as competitive as we can, as productive as we can. We will employ local people and we will contribute to economic prosperity in this region. The government provides something else in return, security, um, health services for a healthy workforce, education for an educated workforce. Um, that's especially important in your case where you're relying on entrepreneurial leadership. Um, and so it's, if your question is to what extent can you rely exclusively on the, 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 something that's happening regionally, 
and, and less so on the national government. My, my answer is I'd be cautious about that because I think th at the end of the day, there's still a reliance on government to provide those public goods um, that are crucial for any private sector firm to be successful. So how that deal gets struck in a place like Zimbabwe um, is you know, obviously complicated, but I, I'd be cautious about trying to somehow evade the, the national government because of that necessity of the provision of those public goods. Well, and in some instances, right, the creation of markets before they actually exist. So they can also stimulate kind of aggregate demand. So China, China does not have the, the, the globe's kind of most competitive solar sector uh, because of a natural evolution of the market playing out, right? It has it because mm -hmm. the government engaged in a significant amount of capital channeling to then provide a context in which these private actors mm -hmm. could then compete uh, in a variety of ways to stimulate uh, increases in efficiency and, and lowering of cost to the point where it's now created this l global public good, which is the spillover, which is making this form of energy cost competitive with, with even kind of relatively high-tech coal power, coal-fired power.